Hello and welcome back to series two of So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill, a wildlife and science filmmaker and writer. And I'm Sam Lee. I'm a singer, I'm a nature lover and writer, and now host with you, Tom, on this podcast. Together, we're going to be talking all about the climate and nature crises. And about how we can communicate them. Our mission is to energise and inspire you, our audience. So we can all, in some form, help prevent this wonderful planet of ours from becoming unlivable. And this series of So Hot Right Now is very kindly sponsored by One Earth, an organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius through three key transitions, shifting to 100% renewable energy, protection and restoration of nature and regenerative agriculture. This This is So Hot hot Right right Now. now. Welcome to episode four. This season, we're talking to people who we don't normally get to hear from or learn from their experiences. And we're taking this opportunity of viewing our shared global challenges through the lenses of our amazing guests. Uh, Today, our guest is a retired four-star general with 34 years in the US military. He served in South Korea in the 80s. The Gulf War in the 90s led the Joint Special Operations Command and was commander of US and NATO forces in Afghanistan. Since leaving the army, he's become a best-selling author, teaches leadership at Yale, and co-founded the McChrystal Group. Have we got that all right, General McChrystal? You nailed it, Sam. Um, <laughs> phew. Um, also, I've never met a general before. How should we address you? Call me Stan, please. Stan? Yeah. Phew, okay. So I think the first thing we'd like to do is ask for you personally, you've been working in many different countries, many different landscapes. You're based down in Virginia. What are the natural landscapes that inspire you that you like to spend time personally or maybe with your family? Tell us a little bit about what those places mean to you. I like a lot of different areas, but to be honest, the mountains in Western Virginia, the Shenandoah Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains, I think it's the most beautiful place in the world to me. Oh, I mean, I'm very pleased you bring the Blue Ridge Mountains up. As a folk musician, I actually personally sing many of the songs that come from that area, the Appalachia, some of the old English ballads, and it's a rich place culturally. So I'm pleased to hear it's close to your heart too. Uh, so we'd be really looking forward to speaking with you. You've had such a unique perspective on the military as it's gone through big changes. So just to take it back to the beginning of your career, if it was 1976 when you graduated as a second lieutenant, At that point, I mean, very few people were really talking about climate change, but was the military in any way concerned with it? It really wasn't. The military was much more focused on ensuring the security of oil flows. Because you remember in 1973 was the first oil shock and then 79 the second. Mm -hmm. And so much of my career was focused around our concern to have access to energy. So in a way, it's like almost a total reversal now where the thing that the military was brought in to protect has now itself become understood to be a threat. Could you talk a bit about how you saw that perception change within the military? Like, is today addressing the threat to national security from a changing climate seen as part of the military's duty? Yes, it is. And it is seen for several reasons. The first is the military reflects society. So Mm -hmm. military members are typically family members with kids and grandkids and whatnot. I have three granddaughters and obviously I want to leave them a world they can live in. Yeah. 
which means that climate change is a great big deal to me on a personal level. Mm -hmm. But on a military level, on a more practical policy-making level, it's become very real. And it's become very real because, I mean, if you have things like the melting of polar ice caps, one, you have potential raising of sea levels, and that has effect of, you know, the terrain. Yeah. The second has the effect of opening up an entirely new field of potential conflict. Mm -hmm. As you know, the Arctic Circle now, now that it is navigable, you can have things happen up there that we would rather not have happen up there, naval conflict and whatnot. So there's a challenge there. Mm. And then there are things such as the Syrian civil war, which all of us watched for the last decade. You know, it really kicked off with a uh, drought in Syria. And so maybe that was caused by climate change. Maybe it was not. But what it does is it reminds everybody that as you have changes in climate, it affects people. As you affect people, you affect politics, you affect potential conflicts, you affect all the things that create military challenges as well as social challenges in the world. So can I ask, because you know, one of the important tasks that you speak quite eloquently about is about preempting issues that are gonna appear, looking into the future. It adds a huge complexity for any industry or organization to try and look at what the implications are on your own population and especially on the army. How is that conversation being had within the forces, within high levels, and also being communicated outwards? Yeah, I think for the main, the force is thinking about the impact that potential climate change will have mm -hmm. on things like how wars will be fought and what conflicts will be caused by shortages, things like that. Mm. There's also uh, the reality that the military is trying to have a better carbon footprint. Yeah. The military is trying to have less impact on the environment. Yeah. And because the military is not so huge that it will move the needle itself, but it's got to be something that can be an example to corporations, an example to young people and all that sort of thing. So we got to walk the walk. One thing I've been wondering is also about if the military is concerned about something, the public would take it seriously. And there's been a shift in climate communications where previously many scientists didn't feel it was their place to speak out about the climate crisis. They felt that it was the place of the government and the media to then essentially call for change and to initiate that change. But as that change didn't really happen quickly enough, many scientists are now feeling that it's part of their remit to advocate for change. And I wonder, has a similar change taken place in the military that has taken place in science with personnel feeling that they could also have a role in communicating the gravity of the situation so the public at large takes it more seriously? I think they do. Um, I'll be honest, at the beginning of this, I remember the first Earth Day in 1970, mm -hmm. I think the military was just trying to be a good player and would sort of head nod, but moved along with the flow of events, which was pretty glacial at that point. Yeah. I think now it's different. I think the military had the ability in meetings with policymakers to slap the table and say, wait a minute, you need to understand that if the population of this developing country rises to this number over the next two decades and the effect of climate change makes their homeland very difficult to support a population, we are going to have an issue. And that issue is going to at some point, you know, involve security issues that could be military. Mm -hmm. So I think the military has the ability to get people's attention and connect the dots yeah. to a very practical requirement. Mm -hmm. 
that hopefully can move policymakers because we've tried to move policymakers on the philosophic or theoretical level that you just don't want to foul the world, but that hasn't been universally effective. Yeah. yeah. You've spoken so brilliantly about the acquiring of information to make your decisions and the art of listening. Scientists are in many ways the people, the barometers of the future of what's going on in the world and where likely issues are going to start arising. How much are you speaking to scientists and other bodies in trying to learn about the changes that are going on? Mostly what I'm doing with that is listening because I don't bring vast expertise, but I do like to listen to hear them because what they do is they will give you a sense of what's real and what isn't because there's so much information out there and so many competing arguments about this and that. Scientists, I'm a great believer in data. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have opinions and all, but at the end of the day, if you've got good data, it will give you a pretty good idea on where things are going. Mm -hmm. And I think that climate change is a little more difficult because it affects stakeholders so differently. Mm -hmm. Because a country that is developing and has a dependence upon coal for electrical power, you know, they've got an argument to make that says, hey, you've already developed your economy. We have got to get to a level where we can compete. And this is where I think we've got to pull data out and try to take some of the miscommunication out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about asking questions as well. And I wondered, this is something that we as people who are deeply interested in the environment like you are, with so much information, how do we ask good questions? What's the secret to asking the right question? Yeah, I think the first thing is understand that many people who are going to answer your question are trying to figure out what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. I found this when I got very senior in the military. And it's not because they're liars or bad people, it's because they want to please. And so if I go to them and I say, all right, is my strategy working? You know, is, I'm the general, is mm -hmm. my strategy working? The answer will be yes. It's very rare case when a junior person feels confident enough to say differently. Mm -hmm. Even if you say, what do you think of the strategy? They know it's yours and they answer. However, if you step back, if you go, what strategy would you do? Mm -hmm. If we couldn't do my strategy, what decisions would you make? Then what you've done is you've made it okay for them to answer and you've given them a really broad easel to paint on. And unless you do that, I find that you're always going to get sort of limited or constrained responses. So that's more about understanding human nature and how people act in hierarchies or where they fear that they might be repercussions for expressing a valid opinion. It's fascinating to think of that in, that in terms of being at the top of a chain of command with something as important as those kind of pivotal decisions to make. Right. Um, since leaving the military, you've written lots of books. Some have been bestsellers and you've just released a new one. It's called Risk, A User's Guide. And I've got a copy right here and it's brilliant. And I was really struck by something which you describe as the myth of helplessness. And if you don't, I'm just going to quote a bit from the book. The mythology of helplessness persists. Faced with clear indications of a pending terrorist attack or the reality of a deadly pandemic, we're unable to imagine how the threat might materialize, or we will not overcome the inertia of inaction to respond effectively to it. The scourges of AIDS, COVID-19 and climate change, among others, are judged to be acts of God or nature that fail to mobilize us for action. But inaction, including a failure to prepare for action, is little more than a dodge. And I think that you absolutely nailed something which is really stymieing so much of my work. I make environmental and science documentaries, and yet I'm trying to represent a scary situation. But unfortunately, it feels like sometimes everybody naturally tips too far 
And they say, well, it's a waste of time. We're doomed. And it's really frustrating as a narrative kind of pitfall to avoid in engaging people in communication. So what do you think from your career in leadership, from your career in the military, that storytellers, communicators can learn so that we can kill this zombie narrative, this myth of helplessness? Yeah, no, it's a great one. I think the myths of helplessness also comes from you're looking for an excuse to do nothing, right. you know, yeah. because you don't know what to do or it's going to be hard or frightening or dangerous or expensive. And so when you find an excuse that says, well, a meteor is going to come, but we don't know which direction it's going to come from, you say, well, so we can't predict it. Mm -hmm. When in reality, about 80% of what you do to prepare for a potential crisis or a threat is the same across all different threats. Right. It's how do you get your act together to communicate, make decisions, you know. So when we talk about the myths of helplessness, we can solve almost any problem. Mm -hmm. And we can take a big bite out of any problem, even if we can't completely solve it, if we just start with the actual absolute decision that we are going to do that. This is where leadership comes in. Because leadership says, all right, I know that this is a big, difficult, daunting issue, but every journey starts with the first step, so we are gonna do this, and we are gonna hold ourselves accountable to it. And it gets to the idea of narrative. I'm a great believer that People need a narrative. They need a story to believe in. Right. With climate change, it seems to me there are several things at risk. There's a certain group of people who say, I'm just going to go sit on the curb and wait until smart people figure it out. I don't have to worry about it. But the rest of us sort of don't know where to begin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know it's going to be difficult. We know it's going to take things. But we haven't had leaders who have broken it down into a journey that says, here are all the different actions we've got to take. Some modifying how we do things in our lives, mm -hmm. some making policy decisions on taxes and whatnot. We haven't created a story mm -hmm. that says, this is our story to solving this problem. Right. This is our journey. Because I think people would want to be on it. And I'm kind of surprised we haven't done that well. We've done too much admiring of the problem. Tom and me have been talking a lot about this, actually. I mean, it's, you know, we sitting over in the UK observing the United States uh, see an enormous, you know, complex amount of rhetoric and division like I've not seen in my relatively short life. The military sits in a very interesting position because, you know, you're your own entity and your decisions are very internal. But does the army have a role to play now in communicating the situation as it is and as it will be beyond the yes voting hungry political parties? How do you see the military's role in time to come for being exponents of the circumstances and the solutions? This is a very nuanced conversation we're about to have because that's a very thoughtful question. So I'm going to answer it on several levels. The first is the military should try to be as apolitical as it can, mm -hmm. should try to make policy recommendations based upon data. Then I think the military has another role, and that is as a reflection of the nation. It should reflect mm -hmm. those values that the nation wants to have. Mm -hmm. So the military should be as disciplined as possible, as honest as possible, as well-behaved as possible. So we should be an example to the nation. Now, here's where this gets difficult. If the military starts to view themselves as more righteous than the rest of the nation, mm -hmm we are more honest, we are more this, we are more whatever. The danger is that military starts to perceive itself as a little better than the nation. Mm -hmm. 
And if it views itself as better than the nation, then you got a problem because then the military starts to have an evolution where the military says, well, we actually believe in the Constitution and we believe in democracy or whatever it is we say we believe in more than all these other people. Therefore, we should be the guardians of that. And if we're the guardians, yeah. what stops us from stepping in and taking over? I really hear you on this. And you've got a PR campaign that you've got to be very careful with. But let's be honest, we live in a time where the generations are growing up in a very different world, where there is a real apathy towards social conduct, towards moral conduct, accountability to our families, our communities, the international communities. We've got some real work to do in learning about compassion and care for each other, let alone ourselves. How does that happen within the military? How does it happen amongst your colleagues? And how does one try and you know advocate that outwards? I think that Inside the military, we've got to start with saying, first and foremost, you are a good person and a good American. Mm -hmm. Your primary responsibility as a citizen is to be a good person, to take care of each other. Your primary responsibility yeah. isn't taken away when you become a soldier. In fact, it's reinforced. You are supposed to respect other people's rights. You are supposed to take care of people, all those kinds of things. So you don't become divorced from citizenship. You become citizenship squared. And so you've got to be an even better citizen than ever before. But do you, because the military has stood for many things that people on some sides of the political spectrum are not happy with or wouldn't be comfortable with, how does it communicate this value system? Apart from in the actions of its personnel, do you think there's any way that the military can sort of make it clear that it's not going to be drawn into the bun fight of political sides, you know, which has happened over climate and will certainly happen over the nature crisis because of the vast resources involved and this, as you put it, the stakeholder inequalities of how things will pan out. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, this is going to be a balancing act for the military, going to take a huge amount of maturity on the part of military leaders to communicate out. Right now, we've had a volunteer military in the U.S. for uh, almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. And while it has produced a very professional force, I would argue that there are inherent weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Our recruiting for enlisted ranks tends to come from certain parts of the nation, the Midwest and the South. It's disproportionately there. And it's also disproportionately people who are connected with someone who served before. Mm -hmm. The danger of this kind of professionalization is that you become insular and you start to think of the military as a separate guild. And if that guild takes up a political leaning or bias to it, then you've really got a challenge. We haven't really had that yet, although we're worried about some of that inside the force right now. I think we ought to go back to universal conscription. I think that every part of America should be reflected in the military. Now, I, I understand the tension between having an all-volunteer force and something like that. And I'm not saying draft everybody because you don't need everybody but you need representation and you also need former soldiers going back out into their society. So just to be clear, is that conscription is in like national service where there would be no choice, you couldn't not go if you were called upon unless there was a good reason like sort of jury duty. And that would be in order to make a better representation of the spread of people in the, in the country. That's what I personally believe. I don't think it's a right. commonly held belief. I will say that my cause in civilian life has been for national service for all young Americans in a civilian context mm -hmm. to do health care, education, whatever. And I think every young person ought to do at least a year of full-time national service just to contribute to society mm -hmm. because you'll think of yourself differently later. It does feel like as we're entering this period of change and threat 
and instability that we could be brought together in the service of trying to mitigate and reduce the risks to ourselves and internationally and doing work in that way. I, I kind of like that idea. I mean, in a weird way, I, I kind of like to have had such an experience because you just get launched into the world and you follow it in your own little silo. And I've only been able to meet the people I've met because of choices I've had. Nobody else has plucked me out and introduced me to people from different backgrounds. And I, I would have appreciated that. Yeah, um, people have a absolute thirst for a sense of purpose. I used to describe to people who would come to see the counter-terrorist fight in Iraq and I would say that the most elite forces in my organization, which included 22SAS and our Delta Force, were not very different from the Al-Qaeda operatives who were the most effective against us because they were both groups of people who were very committed to a cause because they wanted to be a part of a team. They held themselves to very high standards. And in reality, I think the difference was what life path they took that took them in that direction. Mm -hmm. You know, for one quirk of fate, any one of them could have gone the other way. Now, some people were offended by that. But I would also say that if you look at the emergence of the Taliban in 1994, they came out of madrasas in Pakistan as young Afghan men who were disgusted by the failure of the Mujahideen groups that had helped defeat the Soviets at governing. Warlords were intensely corrupt and running Afghanistan in a pretty hateful way. And the Taliban came in like this new broom to sweep clean. And they were passionate. They were a little bit too extreme on many of their views, but they were very honest and they took great pride in that and whatnot. I actually think that there is going to be a movement, probably in both our nations, of young people that looks and feels a little bit like that because you're gonna have a young generation that says, we need a sense of purpose, we need a sense of focus, and it's going to be somewhat judgmental, meaning anybody who isn't sort of on the right side of thinking is going to be viewed. I think the cancel culture is a little of this, all the corrupted view of it, because I think we are in a period where people are frustrated with institutions, frustrated with the lack of norms, frustrated with the lack of values being reflected, and I think that's gonna produce yeah. a backlash. Now, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because it could be very healthy. It could be a backlash that says, okay, we're going to clean up our politics, we're going to do this, and that'd be positive. Or it could become sort of an extremist movement. And I think we need to be, you know, attuned to the likelihood that some version of that's going to emerge pretty quickly. It may already be. So I guess that when you don't trust your politicians, when your quality of life is decreasing, and when you don't feel enfranchised, those are always historically times where things change and obviously like we already have situations like that we've seen political instability and strange developments in both of our countries but now we're going to have these crises you know it's going to be for me it feels like it would be quite surprising if we didn't maybe we should take it back into sort of civilian life because that's what most of our listeners exist in how can they chart their path in like the next five or 10 years, they're not military people, but they know that they're going to be in for conflicting, strange, intense situations. Yeah. How, in your view, could they conduct themselves? I'm not a deeply religious person, but in some ways I think I'm a spiritual person. And I believe we have to start by individuals sort of taking their personal journey. Sometimes we call it wellness. I would expand it and I would say, what is our role and what is our responsibility? I think people could do some reading of Marcus Aurelius and others that would give them a center. I think that we are a society where people need to find that starting with themselves. Mm -hmm. And they need to get a sense of 
this is who I am, therefore this is where I think I fit. And it doesn't have to be hugely egotistical because we're all just part of this, but it should be very personal. Then I think if you take that one side out and you start to talk about it on a social level, I think we need some norms. There are certain things you don't say, certain things you don't do, not because you don't have the absolute right to do, but because they are unfair to other people. And then there are things you must do or you should do, and those are responsibilities. In our constitution, we talk about inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. We're really talking about inalienable responsibilities. There are things that just because I'm part of this society, I should do for other people. Mm -hmm. And we often say that's voting and paying taxes. I think it's more than that. So I think a rebirth of that idea which is from the bottom up, from the individual up and going forward, could be very important. And then at the same time, we should hold our leaders accountable. You know, we should hold our leaders accountable for the same behavior that we attempt to hold ourselves accountable for. Um, you teach a leadership course at Yale. You're a senior fellow there. What do you think are the qualities that are needed for leaders in times to come? What are you looking for within leadership? Yeah, really two things. The first is, I'll use the word character, and that really wraps into values and whatnot. Is it a good person? Mm -hmm. Do their instincts and values align up on things which we can live with? They don't have to be the exact same as mine, whatever, but are they generally a good person? Mm -hmm. And then the second is self-discipline. Mm -hmm. You know, most of us, if we're asked to list the traits or behaviors of a good leader, we'll get about the same list. So we know how to be a good leader. Mm -hmm. What we don't know is how to make ourselves be the person we know we ought to be. Mm -hmm. We don't have the self-discipline to do it. Now, the reason mm -hmm. I put both character and self-discipline is you'll see some very poor characters, people with lousy values mm -hmm. that are very self-disciplined and therefore they are very successful, but in a negative way. Yeah. You know, they're very opportunistic and whatnot. So you have to marry the two, but just being a good person without the self-discipline to do stuff and to live that way is probably the greatest missed opportunity. It translates over. Mm -hmm. If you reflect the right kinds of behaviors and values, there is a payoff to that. I think on things like climate change, you could bring that down to solve the problem, which means everybody's gotta to come together and they've gotta make mm -hmm. some puts and takes to get it done. In my country, we have hit a period where we seem incapable of solving the problem. Mm -hmm. Whatever the problem is, you just insert it. COVID-19 was a great example of our inability to solve mm -hmm. a very manageable problem. I think climate's another one. Yes. So I try to advocate for that. It's always hard, though, because in the United States, to get listened to, you have to be sort of hyperbolic. And you have mm -hmm. to stand up and say, everybody's going to die of greenhouse gases tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And then somebody mm -hmm. may pay attention and write it. But of course, that's not going to happen, mm -hmm. probably. And so what you find is the person who comes out and sounds reasonable and sounds measured doesn't get listened to for very long. And so therein lies our challenge. It's really hard because everyone's trying to cut through and novelty and volume is king. And I guess the other thing is being wrong. We are so quick to cry hypocrite. Anybody who has changed their mind about something Whereas really that should be an admirable trait as new information comes in. Obama talked about that in sort of when he was talking about wokeness and how 
everyone's so quick to point out the fallibility of somebody else as an indicator of their own infallibility. And everyone is terrified of being seen publicly, of not having the correct opinion. And it just means, I mean, I find this myself, I'm scared of having opinions sometimes, because Mm. I won't be allowed to change them. And I will just be held to my wrong opinion or an opinion that is currently right, but might be wrong. And it's really tricky with having an intelligent discussion with people, a public one. Like, what are you most scared of and how do you deal with it? Um, If you're talking on a personal level, I am most scared of the American democratic experiment failing. I am most Mm -hmm. scared of dysfunction in our government causing Mm -hmm. the American Republic not to function and then to become something very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Many people have similar feelings about whatever big problem like that it is. How do you reconcile yourself to it and get through the day? Yeah, I joke with people that I'm burying weapons under my patio in my backyard, but that's not real. What I'm really doing is trying to talk to people, play my role, not be hyperbolic. But I do feel a a bit helpless, like many people do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for expressing that, because helplessness is a very important thing to feel. And actually, to see it in others helps us all in our own helplessness know that that's not a bad place to be. We don't have to have the answers. Well, it's a rational response. Yeah. And it makes you feel unrational if you feel that other people aren't feeling that too. Right. Yeah. Um, if people listening want to help you do what you're doing in your post-military career, how can they get involved or help? Yeah. The biggest one, of course, you know, climate change would be great. Everybody's got a different angle they've got to grab onto. Um, the Service Year Alliance in my country would... Anything that gets the idea that young people should do a year of service is a positive. Anything that creates an expectation. If you're a business owner and a young person comes and you just look them in the eye and say, I'd like you to go do a year of conservation, health care, education, and then at the end of it, you come here, your job will be waiting for you. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of, at the very retail level, we can change our society if we set new norms. Mm-hmm. We will get what we demand. And so we've got to have the courage to do that. Perhaps it should be folded into education because we immediately accept that young people from the age of five till 18 should just sit in rooms doing the same thing every day. Why not one of those years be a year of service? Funny because my remaining experience of school was the combined cadet force and actually the work that we did in going off spending weekends and movers although not coming with a military slant of my family or my inclination was a time of great nature connection i had some wonderful experiences of of seeing where the training grounds are some of the most biodiverse places in the uk and i had some phenomenal experiences with nature when i was supposed to be doing some sort of you know military operation i was there picking (laughs) abandoned your weapons i did picking picking wild strawberries yeah (laughs) just a a last one for you stanley and you have stan sorry (laughs) uh what do you wish you'd known at the start of your career Uh, Yeah, it's not anything tactical. It's not strategic. It is when you get to this point in life and you stop back and say, okay, what really mattered? Mm -hmm. What really mattered was the relationships I built with people Mm -hmm. and therefore the kind of person that I offered myself, you know, to be in that relationship Mm -hmm. because nothing else really stacks up. It's not rank. It's not Mm -hmm. money. It's not any of that because that stuff just doesn't seem very important. Mm -hmm. But whether or not the people you respect, respect you, are you the friend that you would like to have? Mm -hmm. That's the part that I wish I'd known. I mean, I kind of knew it, but you don't know that that is more important than everything else. 
some exceptional wisdom. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. You're kind to have had me and thank you very much. What a man. You know, I came in to it with all sorts of, you know, fascination, but also a timidity that I might hear things, some ugliness and some things I didn't like. And there were certainly moments that I felt these were not my approaches and issues mm. in life. But actually, I had a great sense of yeah, love and compassion for his integrity. I found that interview quite intimidating. I've never interviewed a general before. I didn't know what to call him. It was nice that he said we could call him Stan. And well, we have Lucy Siegel here who actually set up that interview. It was her suggestion before she abandoned us to be a big dog at the cop. Before I bailed. Before you bailed. But it's okay. It's okay. But Lucy, why did you think it would be interesting to speak to Stan McChrystal? Well, I've always wanted to speak to a senior person in the US military. And the reason was that pre-Trump, one of the things that was said to me by a climate expert who I really, really rate was that the generals were very pro-action on climate because they didn't want to defend pipelines because defending oil pipelines leads to deaths and body bags and that is the one thing that they wanted to avoid. So the US generals were invested in tackling climate change and actually had a pro-renewables agenda, hmm. essentially, which I always thought was very interesting. And the idea at the time, this was when Trump had just been elected, was that they would keep some sort of control on him and that he may not even exit the Paris climate regime. That hmm. failed. However, I still thought it was an interesting line of inquiry. It's amazing because actually McChrystal's stance was very much about PR and he had a really kind of good vision about, you know, the role that the army plays. And it sounded to me like he's progressed from just, I don't want to lose any more soldiers, to actually they've realised the impact of climate change is going to mean that the army is going to have such a massive role. So the more they can mitigate further the kind of fallout the less work they have to do. And he was quite kind of like, he'd done his accountancy, you know, he'd done the sums on what climate change meant and the impact on the forces. Did you get that impression, Tom? Yeah, and it felt like his general frustrations about the polarisation of these conversations, I think, you know, they're not limited to climate. Uh, frustrations with a reporting environment where we look for antagonists, you know, we look for two sides, you know, people to battle it out and the winning argument to win. And that leads to just looking for discord. Whereas these big systemic problems are not going to be solved by a side beating another side. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's quite interesting for me that that should come from somebody who's in the business of winning battles. Or at least that is one of the traditional sides of you know, KPIs of the military. <laughs> But also you know, well done for interviewing him because it must have been scary. I was really we scared. Terrified. I was really scared. Yeah. Sorry. Like, oh my God. <laughs> no, but he was a very approachable guy. You know, he's done his work with face to face. He's a PR man. He's a performing artist in that sense. And he's a diplomat. He knows what to say. He's got his answers made out, you know. <laughs> it was quite funny when like, because it was on Zoom, he beamed in from this kind of studio where he was lit and being professionally filmed in oh, Samu and Sam's flat, squeezed next to each other so we could both appear on the screen like, you know, the couples in from when Harry met Sally, you know, when they sit on the sofas together or, like, or two Muppets, you know, like Eric and Ernie or something. Or Gogglebox. Or Gogglebox, yeah. It was like, and we were like, oh, hello, um, so... He, also, I wonder what he made of you, but anyway, that's. I different... wanted to, but he, in a way, I think he, he was he was disarmed by us. And he was pretty chiller. He could have been like, "These people are clowns. I'm not wasting my time." But he went over. He spent more time than he needed to speaking to us, and he, I think, he kind of engaged with the point of what this podcast is, which is sort of 
communicating, showing the human side of these big problems? There was a really interesting thing, actually, retrospectively, because we interviewed McChrystal just before we went up to COP. Mm. And he was very careful about what's the army's role in what's their environmental footprint what's their carbon footprint and actually Tom and me had this really amazing chance encounter in the Arctic base camp with this guy who'd come there from he's a scientist scientist from Lancaster University and a New Yorker who'd found his way through Madagascar to end up doing the research quite covert research into what the carbon footprint for armies around the globe obviously focusing on America and you know how much carbon does it emit to send an aircraft carrier and its attendant fleet you know, from one theatre of, like, operations to another. And this man's job was to try and make that footprint transparent, make it important for armies to declare. Because he said they are enormous. And they would do everything they can to not reveal this information because they are aware that it's a deep compromise on their practice. But just think about Top Gun, right? Think about every, like, (laughs) Jerry Bruckheimer movie you've ever seen or any, like, big, like... Independence Day, it, all it is is big pieces of metal burning fossil fuels flying around in formation. You know, you know, Top Gun is not that, you know, that it's a film. No, but I'm thinking about like the army and the armed forces are often part of the making of those films and they often lend their equipment and their services to them if they're portrayed well. They're very sensitive to how they're viewed. And actually his evidence was saying that the biggest outputter is aircrafts Hmm. and just the amount of aviation fuel that's burned is the equivalent to the entire carbon greenhouse gas emission for some rather sizable countries this is just the u.s u.s army just the u.s air force's carbon footprint and if only we'd met that guy before we interviewed stan general mccrystal but it's and it comes back to sam and your work with music declares like all of this work starts in our own backyard our own Mm -hmm. industries like we can't just talk about like the system change we also need to talk about like what can you do in your the world that you touch Mm -hmm. Army declares. Army declares an emergency. They've done that quite a lot, actually. Yeah, they pretty much are the people. They're professional emergency declarers. (laughs) Thank you very much to our guests today on this show, as well as all you lovely listeners. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, give us a rating. It'll cheer us up and encourage us. You can follow us on social media at SoHotPod. You can also follow me, Sam Lee, at Sam Lee Song. And you can follow me, can't you, Sam, at Tom Mustill. A huge thanks to Arctic Base Camp for providing home and food and sustenance while we were up in COP. Of course, special thanks to Carl Burkhardt and his team at One Earth without whom we wouldn't have been able to do this series. Once again, One Earth is a philanthropic organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5C. Find out more at One Earth. So Hot Right Now was hosted by me, Sam Lee. And me, Tom Mustill. It's produced by Picture Zero Productions and Pod Monkey. This episode was recorded by James Hay. And it's Soho Radio Studios. The series producer is Lindsay. Say hello to our listeners, Lindsay. The executive producers are Matt and Scott at Podmonkey and also the wonderful Burgess Haycock at Picture Zero.